Welcome to Transforming Medical Communications, a podcast by MedCom's experts. We share medical communications insights and advice from the best and brightest in the industry to find out what they're doing to push our industry forward. Here's your host, Wesley Portages. Welcome to the Transforming Medical Communications podcast. I'm your host, Wesley Portuguese, and joining me today is Rebecca McCracken, who is quite literally at the forefront of redefining priorities in medical communications, especially in the world of rare diseases. Rebecca brings to the table over 20 years of rich experience in the biopharma and biotech sectors. She's an expert in global medical affairs, scientific communication strategy, and has held leadership roles at various organizations including Agios Pharmaceuticals, where she currently serves as the Director of Global Scientific Communications and Publications. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Great to have you here. Hi, Wesley. Great to be here. How are you doing today? Really well, really well. It's a great day, and I'm excited about our upcoming discussion here. That being said, maybe we can start with a general question, which is, you have quite a journey behind you in in medical communications with uh, different roles from uh, the agency side to the industry side. Can you walk us a little bit through your career path and maybe also tell us what led you to uh, the rare disease space? Of course. In general, my background is micro and epi for my undergraduate degrees. And I actually started in clinical trials, first job right out of school, right undergrad, as the laboratory manager for a pediatric clinical trial group. So not on the industry side, but there. And then after graduate school, applied for a job not knowing at all what it was, right? Interviewed. Still didn't really know what the job was. Was hired, still didn't totally know what the job was, but it was a medical communications job in industry. And over the years, I've held different roles as a medical writer, principal medical writer in both clinical, early development, HEOR. I've worked with large CROs in medical writing across the spectrum with agencies on more SciComs pieces versus publications in medical writing and market access as well, doing market access research and pieces, and back into industry where right now I am the director of scientific communications and publications at Agios. And for rare disease, it's a very organic path and a little bit of fate, considering that I even got started in the industry just kind of by chance. Yeah. Wow. What a story. So I guess if you have had perspectives from so many different roles, I think you probably must have seen some changes in the medical communication space over time. So what would you say, like, from one to the other end of the spectrum, what have you really seen changing over all those years? I think the digital component, the digital innovation is the one that jumps at me the biggest. I I mean, you got to remember when I started this, your phones could text, but that was about it. You weren't downloading a video into your phone to watch it. You weren't scanning QR codes or anything like that. So I think just the number of mediums and platforms that we have to increase visibility, that is huge compared to what it was 15, 20 years ago. And I think how MedComs collaborates and medical in general collaborate with patient organizations and the patient advocacy groups and even some of their other functions within, I I just, I'm It's not as siloed. It has really grown over the years. So it's a very, very cross-collaborative group now. Yeah. And it has been quite uh, exponential, especially on the digital channels, right? And my little nephew asked me some time ago, like, hey, Uncle Wesley, what was your favorite iPad app when you were a kid? 
need to explain that there were no iPads, right? And um, yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of hard to imagine that it changed so much, but it also is one of the reasons why we really have some catching up to do as an industry, right? Of course, the rare disease space is quite specialized inherently. How does that influence the strategies that you use in medical communications? For rare disease, you're usually considering a smaller population than you would for some of your general chronic diseases, right? Just if you look at the sheer volume of patients and providers, right? And providers with knowledge of that matter. So you're looking for a very targeted audience. Some of the strategies from a MedCom perspective that we're looking at is you can't really cast a wide net and cross your fingers, right? It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. So you really have to kind of target and get a sense for where are they going for their information? How are they using it? Like what platforms, right? And timing. What's the timing of this, right? When are they trying to do this? And then what specific content are they hungry for? And kind of getting all of those. But it's a much more targeted approach than historically more general areas have been where it's casting a wide net and you know you're going to get the number you need, right, for visibility. So it's really, really, really making sure you know and working collaboratively from a strategic perspective to really nail down what's your target audience. Yeah. So kind of what I hear you say is maybe a kind of an omni-channel statement here. Reach the right HCP at the right time with the right information in the right place, right? That's exactly it. And I think it's across the board even in general areas now, but very, very important in, in the rare disease space. Yeah. Would you be able to share some insights on more concretely, perhaps, how companies can achieve that in rare disease or in general? So in my experience and not speaking from any particular role I've had, but just kind of over the past 15 years, a good way to do this is social listening activities at first to find out what channels, where are they, when are they listening to this? specifically what platforms they're using. So if you're a group that's moving into this digital space, right? Like, let's be honest, this is vital at this point. Like, if you don't have it, you have to do it now. But what is your audience? Are you looking for HCPs, right? If you're a different function, is there a different group you're trying to target? And then what type of information, what platform is going to fit that best? So do you need to prepare and develop strategy for X channels? Would LinkedIn work better? Is it better if you have a medical website or something of that nature? And those is how do you drive people to that, right? It's great if you develop them, but there needs to be a strategy to get people there because if the content's there, that's great, but you need to drive people there. And ultimately, the whole point of all of that, whether it's X, any other platform, is you really want to use those drive people to increase visibility of whatever scientific information you have, right? Whether it's data, trial materials, is it disease education materials? Are you trying to increase engagement, right? Specific KOL and DOL engagement, but using those to drive people to the data and then using that to increase your engagement from there. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I think that is often the trick, right? Especially with the company-owned platforms. I personally am a big believer in those platforms, but I often feel that the third-party platforms around it that you kind of need to use to get to your audience or get your audience to you are underutilized or not utilized in the right way, right? For instance, if you look at platforms like Kudos or Figshare or maybe Sermo or Doximity, if the company already goes to any of those platforms, let's make that assumption here, then they often give all the information away right away there rather than 
sparking the curiosity and leading the audience actually towards the platform that they have and where they want to build this like long-lasting connection with the HCP. Can I ask you if you have any experiences with using those third-party platforms or some of those and how that worked out for you? This is interesting. I actually had this conversation with a colleague a couple days ago, a former colleague from several years ago. I personally have not used some of these third-party platforms, but I do have colleagues that have. And they are very well-versed with what you can do and what you can't. Some of these third-party sites have great analytics, right, that can help you target, that can help reach an audience that maybe a company-specific site might not be able to reach, right? Especially from a medical point of view with disease education, right? Nothing with treatment, nothing that's going to, like, cross any lines. But they had very good success with that, recommend it highly. And and a lot of the third-party platforms from what I've heard in my discussions, like, they'll work. You can link back to your material sometimes. So you can make that connection, like you were saying, but there's a platform where it, it increases your audience almost immediately when you use those third-party platforms. So I think finding the right platform for your company, whatever you're legal and, you know, mitigating any risks, make sure everyone's comfortable. But I do think they're underutilized. Personally, I have seen in probably the past five years a big expansion on those. I'd say almost kind of a really big effort among a lot of colleagues. I mean, we've talked, we've compared that you're really seeing even teams internally that they're welcoming this, right? That they do have experience. These are very successful strategies and it's really getting people a much broader audience. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, their business model is, of course, to kind of build a community. And that's what their focus is on. And as pharma companies, we don't do that. Our mission and our purpose is not to build necessarily a community or a network of an audience group. And they do, right? And that's kind of the thing that they monetize is access to an audience that you need to get access to or that you need to reach somehow. And I think absolutely there is a lot of opportunity there to improve on how we drive reach. And then once the reach is established, you can actually make an impact because now there are people to communicate to. So what are maybe some other things that you can think about that you feel should be innovated more or where we are maybe a little bit behind or opportunities to basically drive reach and engagement? I've noticed over 15, 20 years, right, where medical communications gets a little bit behind the curve is from a timing and strategic perspective, right? Medcom materials are used by lots of people within industry, within companies. These aren't things you want to slap together, right? You're always going to have the build the plane while you're flying it, right? But you really want a standardized message and you really want these materials earlier rather than later, right? And from different angles and again, over years of experience, you can't always start things all at point one, right? You need to time it out resourcing wise, whatever. But I do think starting those materials early is always better. They have so many implications, not just, you know, these materials will get used by the field team, right? Used for engagement. You don't want to just have to throw a slide set together at last minute and no one wants slide sets anymore. Like you'll just see their eyes glaze over as soon as you pull them up. But some of the short videos and some of the digital animation now is awesome, especially for disease mechanism, even treatment mechanisms. It's really beginning it earlier and making sure that that's balanced. You know, also in medical communication, depending where you are, you've got that publications aspect, is making sure that there's a balance between that and the actual 
like SciComm materials, booth materials, videos, podcasts. So you have a good balance so you don't end up with tons and tons of publications and then only two little materials you can use here, right? It's making sure there's a balance so you have materials that can be utilized across your group. And in bringing those in early, bringing those SciComm pieces in early, it really allows you to start disseminating a message outside of something that's in a very strict environment or that you've had to revise based on reviews and so forth. And again, I just go back to the earlier you can get it out, the more visibility you're going to have, right? So you don't want to wait till, oh, crap, we need this right now and then put it together. You're going to have a delay. You're going to have a delay in actually getting visibility. So the sooner you get it out, the more visibility you have. You can start driving your audience where you need to, right? So they have that. And ultimately, it always comes down to that's going to affect the patient, right? Because medical communications, we are the connection between the science and the real world. So you can have all the science, all the data, great. If no one knows about it outside of that group, it's not going to help anybody. So it's really important that like some of these things where we may have challenges or it's a little bit of something in medcoms that medcoms professionals would consider a deficit, that we really strive to get timing of these right. Because at the end of the day, you don't want something be delayed. That's a provider that didn't hear it, didn't see it, right? And so ultimately a patient that potentially didn't benefit from it. Yeah, I hear you. It's actually almost coincidental, I would say. I was recently at the uh, ISMAP Academy in Philadelphia, and there was a session from uh, Beth Wen from Pfizer, and she was having a workshop around integrating publication extenders in your publication plan, right? Because currently it's like, okay, we still do the traditional publication planning, and then once that's done and the publications are there, then we start thinking about, like, well, what are we now going to do with it? And you're kind of late. But we also really need to rethink how we actually do it because in the traditional publication planning, there's a lot of logic behind when you do what, right? You look at the conferences and their scope and their topics and the timing and you plan that out with your data release. But now if you, let's say, create maybe a podcast and some nice infographic and an animation, what is the rationale for when you actually are going to release this? And that led to a really interesting discussion we had there because there's really no benefit for waiting. So I fully agree with you. You need to do this early, you need to plan it early, and you need to release it as early as you can. There's no need to wait for any event to happen to get that information out there. And it is really important right now because the latest statistics are that 68% of HCPs feel overwhelmed with information and they only have like about two hours per week to learn. So there is not much time for them to consume information. So we need to help them. So I really like that. Yeah, I fully agree. And I really do think, to your point, PUBS plans are very, very thought out, where I think sometimes some of the scientific communication materials from the MedCom's perspectives, they're there. And depending on what's going on in a pipeline at various places, right, then there will be a strategy with those. But a lot of times they fall kind of after the publications, especially in rare disease and really in medcoms in general, when you're considering from a timing perspective, from a resourcing perspective, that's very traditional, right? That's a very traditional way of data dissemination. And I fully agree that that's the gold standard for data dissemination. But I do wonder sometimes if the rush to get something published, whether 
at a conference, can that be reevaluated, redesigned? So this is probably about five or seven years ago. I remember a group that just seven abstracts or something, tons of abstracts, right? Great data. But you also have your internal resourcing, right? Priorities. So is there a need to do all of those, right? And there is because you need that data out. But at the same time, could you do two, write a manuscript in tandem that has all the information and then have MenCom materials that you can also utilize with that? So just from a resourcing perspective, kind of balancing that out, but incorporating that when you do the PUPS plan. And I think that's on us as MenCom's professionals to kind of drive the importance of that, honestly, within our groups on why this needs to be done with this. Yeah. Well, I think that makes sense. And I think we're just trying to catch up with the HTTP content consumption preferences. The communication channels have changed, but our processes really haven't, or not as much as it should. I'm actually wondering about your opinion on this particular topic, but personally, I think the different functions in medical affairs will need to work closer together because it's not that distinct anymore. We don't have the pubs department that makes pubs and then MedInfo that sends SRLs. Like, of course, that is all still true, but because of the type of communications and how the omnichannel world is working, it needs to be way more integrated. There needs to be some kind of, I like to call it connective tissue between those different elements. And uh, I think you were referring a little bit to that in the beginning of our conversation, right? Where you're kind of saying like, okay, we have this one backbone of information and now we need to start building materials out of that. So where do you feel this is going in terms of the different functions? I've worked with functions that are very, very siloed. And then I've worked with functions that are very, very collaborative. The ones that are very, very collaborative, it's not, this is mine, this is yours, here we go, right? It's getting input. I mean, I'm always surprised when I hear of groups that make field materials, but they don't actually talk to the field team. Like, that I don't understand, right? Because I'm not in the field. So you want your field team's perspective. Does this work? Does this not? Let's pivot and try something else. And for any type, like if you have a medical microsite, you want as much of that on there as you can for medical, right? You want to maximize anything you're doing so all those different functions can use it. I think it's just incredibly vital for the functions to be collaborative. I think the successful medical affairs teams are when you do have some blurred lines, and that's okay. There's still individual roles, but it's okay if lines get a little bit blurred because that's how you're going to honestly have the best materials, the best outcomes possible. Yeah, absolutely. So it looks like we're in agreement on that. <laughs> yes, totally. So another thing that came up in our discussion is the changing needs of HEPs in terms of content consumption, where the attention span has dropped dramatically. I think currently it's about eight seconds. And it's because of the influx of technology as well. And this leads to the need for short form content or bite-sized content, uh, different names we have. Can you elaborate a little bit on how important these kind of new formats are in your communication strategy? Oh, it's essential. Going back to the attention span, I have a colleague who always likes to point out the average attention span now is shorter than a goldfish. I think it's even shorter than eight seconds now. So it's absolutely essential to have that because not everyone consumes information the same way, right? There's going to be some people that will spend two minutes watching a video or maybe a three-minute video, but even a three-minute video now is considered long. So... You know, not everyone's going to have time to go read a 10-page manuscript. Not everyone's going to have time to go online and read full pages and pages and pages of information. 
So bite-sized information that can pare that down, get the point across compliantly, like all rules and everything, but then show them where, okay, if you have further questions, there's further queries, here's where you go for that. That's absolutely important. And having different types of bite-sized information, you know, whether it's a really short video, whether it's a soundbite over something, if it's a short podcast, all of us process information differently and all of our time constraints are different. So the more options we have, and that's one thing that's great with some of these is you can reutilize materials, right? So you're not having to start from scratch every time. You know, you can make it unique to the different platforms, the different type, but you can still reutilize it. So you still have that uniformed message. You still have uniformed images people can remember. But I mean, it's absolutely vital to plans now. I don't think you could do a strategic mencom plan without that anymore. Yeah, so you're kind of saying like, don't choose one thing. Don't make the one infographic or the one animation, but think about a suite of content, maybe to call it like that, around a well-defined piece of core content and of course the SCP and so on. That is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think what we often forget is that our dear HCPs are also just human. And at home, they are on Instagram and LinkedIn or Facebook, right? And if you see someone scrolling on those platforms, they probably spent a few seconds per post at maximum. And I think that that also flows over into our professional lives. We start using the same behaviors because it's universal. It doesn't matter what you communicate about in a way. Fully agree. So I was wondering if we have listeners here that hear this conversation and they think like, well, you know, I love that. That sounds so great. I feel we're maybe a little bit behind in our organization. What can they do to actually challenge the status quo? And what are some practical ways to improve as an organization in this particular area? So my recommendation is to come up with an idea, put a basically a proposal, a plan, kind of a concept together, benchmark a little, right? And then take it to your MLR, take it to your compliance team and see within your organization, okay, this is where they're risk threshold is. This is what they're willing to take, what they're willing to accept, right? These are the rules you have to follow because everything around social media, it's not uniformed, right? So in medical, we do have very strict rules, right, of what we can and can't do around promotional and that type of thing. But still around social media and certain platforms, there's not concrete rules necessarily, right? So there is the sense of risk mitigation and making sure you're not crossing any boundaries. But I really encourage where I've seen it successful and where new plans, new ideas, just because that particular company's or it's never been done before doesn't mean it can't be done. It may just be a question of how it can be done. So come up with a concept. Benchmark a little. See if anyone's done it. See what do you know are going to be challenges or parameters that you're not going to be able to move. Put that together and then present it. Go to them. Talk to them. Right. What can you do? What can't you do? So it may be everything is fine or you can't do this, but you can do it this way. So I really encourage anytime I'm giving talks about starting anything new outside of traditional printed booth materials or publications is really work closely with your internal teams. Like don't take it on by yourself, right? Reach out, get some people to collaborate with you who may be experts in that particular area. Everyone from compliance additional functions in medical affairs, your IT people, right? Like reach out and really get these people involved or maybe another function outside of medical affairs has done it, outside of MedCom is do it, get their input. 
It may be different roles depending on what function it is, but they'll give you an idea of where to start, but really collaborate and present a concept. And I have found teams that do that, and whether it's from my personal experience, from colleagues' experience, those are the ones where they find a way to make it work and find a way to do it that fits their organization, that fits their HCPs, that fits what's ultimately best for their patients too. And it's not something that has to take forever. It doesn't have to be perfect all the time. Maybe you need it. You know, you can perfect it along the way. But really working closely and collaborating, that way you're not making it and then like, oh, no, we can't do that, right? Like starting from the beginning, collaborating with those different teams. I like that recommendation. I think it also helps people to make sure they think it through. It actually reminds me a little bit of doing a pitch (laughs) in a way. Exactly. And anticipate questions. When you work with a group of folks at an organization for a while, you kind of get a feel for who's going to ask what questions. So as you're building a concept, kind of think about it. When I present this, this person, what would they probably ask based on previous interactions? Because you know, and so you already kind of know where some of those parameters are going to be. You also know they're going to suggest, okay, maybe you can't do it exactly this way, but if you just modify it a little bit, we can totally work with this. So I really do think the sooner people do a concept, ask questions, and make sure there's kind of a clear strategy, right? Like the who, where, what, why. Make sure you have all of that because outside of a concept, leadership has to buy into that as well, right? You can have a great concept, but if there's not an ultimate purpose, then it's not going to go anywhere. So really showing a need for it and the purpose and if it's required, Do you need metrics? Do you have to show KPIs? Having all of that together, that's going to make getting the stuff off the ground so much easier and so much more successful. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned metrics, which was actually something on my mind to talk about here. So what has your experience been collecting metrics, especially on the short form content, I was thinking? Metrics have a place within medical communications and medical affairs. They can be tricky sometimes. I think it's making sure you understand what they're showing, their purpose and limitations of them. For short form video, I really do think understanding how many times is this being viewed, right? What's the reach of this really gives a good picture of visibility. How visible is whatever this content is? Does it capture comprehension of knowledge? Absolutely not, right? We're not capturing that. But can it capture visibility? Yes, indeed. So I think from that perspective, seeing the visibility of these materials, kind of similar to like a publication, how many times has it been cited, right? You're not going to know are people truly comprehending what's in there, but you are going to know how many times someone's gone to it, referenced it, and what they're kind of using it for. And this depends where people are kind of in the stage of these their materials and what they're using it for. Do you see increases and not formal, right? I'm not endorsing like formal correlations or anything like that. But with your increased visibility, just descriptively looking, do you see an increase in maybe MedInfo requests? Do you see an increase in requests for connections with MSLs? Do you see an increase at conferences, right? Like when you put this stuff on conferences and there's links, are you seeing an increase in visitors? captured by any of your leads or anything. So I think for those capturing visibility and some of those, I think it's very good. I think as far as comprehension of knowledge and how far past that individual it goes, that's a little tricky. 
And I think in medical affairs in general, we are in a very unique space that not everything's going to be measurable. It's just not. There's connections made. There's engagements made. Someone may view something and they may share it. We may never know that they share it, right? I think it's just a very unique space. And so my love-hate relationship with metrics, right, is when they're useful, fine, but I'm not one of those people that's going to like die on the sword for the metrics. <laughs> I understand. And I actually, by the way, I really loved how you brought this back to the cross-functional collaboration, right? And that we cannot act as silos anymore. Because you're totally right. In a kind of an omni-channel view, those things should influence each other. And yes, increased MSL requests or MedInfo requests is likely linked to something else that we're doing. So I think that that is a very sensible approach and we need to find ways to kind of connect that better in my view. Metrics is like probably one of the biggest items currently that we're talking about in medcoms and medical affairs. I think the other problem is that our technology and content formats have changed and there is not yet some kind of simplified way to track these metrics. And what I mean by that is if you look, for instance, at other metrics in medcoms, right? Like a good example would be impact factor of journals. That is basically a metric. And if you look at alt metric score for just to, you know, pick one, those actually are based on other factors too. And especially alt metric, they track many, many different things, but then they make kind of one number out of it to make it easy to understand. Well, for short form content, we don't have that yet, right? So when there's a discussion about like, what is a good bounce rate or... What is a good number of visitors? Well, they're actually related. And we need to get to the point where we have maybe some simplified ways of tracking how we're doing that can be applied across channels and so on. I think that's extremely important, especially if you are sharing that either with leadership or with maybe your just organization in general. Because you have to be able to explain what you're showing, right? And some of these, they're not very clear cut sometimes. There's a lot of factors, like you said, that go into them. And I know from that hardcore science feel that I know a lot of us have, there's tons of questions. Where'd that come from? Why is it doing that? Does it account for this, right? And I fully agree. And I like that you brought that up. A, a clean, easy measure that this is what this is showing. So, yeah. And uh, we have a lot of work to do, right? And we have a work cut out for us. If there would be any like aspiring professionals listening to this podcast, what would you recommend for them if they want to grow within the medical communication space? I think my first thing that I would say is probably speak up and ask questions. If you have an idea and you don't speak up, it's never going to happen, right? You might get a no, but if you don't ask or speak up, you're never going to get a yes. So is to speak up and then maybe challenge the norm, right? You could be totally wrong. But if you have an idea, say it because maybe you're not wrong. Maybe no one's thought of that because when people have done something for a long time, they kind of get set in their ways, no matter what, right? And so it's continue to push the envelope. If it's not something that's traditionally been done in med columns, that's okay. Just because it hasn't been done yet doesn't mean we can't do it now. And is to really work collaboratively. I cannot stress that enough. Successful medical communications that I've seen MedComs under medical affairs. I've seen it under R&D. I've seen it in all different places. I think when it's in collaboration with medical affairs, collaboration across the way, it makes it so successful. Just test things out, get each other's input. And really try to think of things as a big picture, 
not just, okay, we need next year's plan. That's great. What about the year after that? What about the year after that? Is there anything else going on that this could have implications on down the line? So try to look at things from a big picture and not just from an industry point of view, not just from how do I get an HCP perspective. Everything we do, the ultimate goal is, yes, you are basically teaching and educating HCPs that are using this to make a decision on how they're caring for a patient. I always feel very humbled in what I do and very privileged that I'm entrusted to do this. But it's really looking at it from that big picture because that's ultimately the end goal. And then then the last thing is, at the end of the day, yes, you're going to have a deadline to get stuff done, right? Yes, the goal is to get this podcast up, right? Yes, the goal is to come up with this microsite. At the end of the day, though, the ultimate goal for that is for there to be an improvement in a patient. Even though MedCom, you're removed, right? You're not necessarily a provider. I feel very fortunate that I had the chance early in my career to work directly with patients because it is a very different perspective. And while in medical, our job is to educate HCPs, you're seeing more and more the patient HCP collaboration come together. But at the end of the day, like we don't get to fail. We don't get to fail because if we communicate the wrong information, if we communicate it to the wrong people, that's going to ultimately affect the patient. We're not directly talking to them, but that's the ultimate end goal is to always try to keep that in mind because that's the importance of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's sometimes in all the busyness and all the different projects, easy to forget that, right? And I think, indeed, we need to remind ourselves about that, that ultimately that's the goal. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, Rebecca, and we've covered so much. If you would need to prioritize maybe three key topics from what we just have discussed that should be on the priority lists of most companies in medical communications, what would those be? Well, the first one would be prioritizing MedComs, making sure that that's a high priority. I like to say sometimes we're the least important, most important thing. (laughs) Prioritizing that, continuing to innovate and use creative ideas. The standard is not going to cut it anymore, even in digital innovation. What you use for one target audience is not going to work for another. So really making sure you're keeping it fresh. And I think the other priority is making sure that collaboration is there and that everyone's unified on a ultimate outcome. What's our ultimate goal? It's to educate the people in healthcare, right? So ultimately, a patient who's living with a condition, there's an improvement there, right? To have a benefit on someone's lives. So really collaborating with your team so you have the most successful medcoms you have, you can get the most visibility, make the most impact to get that information out. I like that. I think those are some good priorities. Well, Rebecca, it was an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and insights with our audience. I think this is really important. We need to share these kind of things and talk about it so that we can all keep innovating. So thank you so much for bringing that in today. Well, thank you again for having me, Wesley. And I totally agree. I think as an industry, I think it's important to you that we share ideas with each other. Proprietary information is always an issue, right? But you can share ideas just like we've done today. You can share examples without crossing those lines, but it's important that we do share those, like, how is this successful? I ran into this roadblock. Have you run into this, right? Because that's just going to make all of MedComs in general stronger, and it's going to improve communication across the board, no matter what 
indication you are, no matter what therapeutic area you're in. So I really do think it's important that we continue to talk with each other and then kind of mentor and build junior mencoms people because they're the ones that are going to be leading and they're going to be in our roles in the upcoming years. Yeah, absolutely. And beautiful thoughts. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you again, Wesley. Thank you. Transforming Medical Communications is brought to you by MedComs Experts. To find out more about MedComs Experts and how we create some of the most cutting-edge medical communications programs anywhere in the world, visit www.medcoms-experts.com. And then make sure to search for Transforming Medical Communications in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at MedComs Experts, thanks for listening.